The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, your epidermis is showing. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 414, Interviews from Codemash, recorded live at Codemash 2009, Sandusky, Ohio, Thursday, January 8th. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telric, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telric.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who needs no intermission... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, your host. I will be here with you for the next hour or so. Richard Campbell, my co-host, he's uh, from Vancouver, British Columbia. He is not here for this introduction, but he'll be here for the interviews in just a minute. Uh, I want to read an email that we got today from Fabio Santos. Who says, guys, I'm a runner and I run marathons. And as part of my training, once in a while, I have to do long runs, which can be an hour and a half to two and a half hours. Imagine now running in Connecticut for that long before going to work during the winter. So it's like January, 5.30 a.m., 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside, dark, and I'm just about to start. My wife thinks I'm crazy and I think she's right. But then I start listening to your show and the Better Know Framework jingle starts, da 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 and all that stuff. Man, I cannot explain, but that's enough to give me all the boost I need to start running and not go back to sleep. Thanks, guys. And please don't drop that session of the show. Well, Fabio, just for you, here's Better Know Framework. <laughs> And of course, we never really anticipated dropping Better Know Framework and the introductions with Richard. 
but we did get busy over the holidays and um, just one thing led to another. So we got we got a little, you know, we're slacking a little bit. What, what can I say? Uh, today I'm going to talk about routed events in WPF. A routed event functionally is a type of event that can invoke handlers on multiple listeners in an element tree rather than on just the object that raised the event. As for the implementation, it's a CLR event that is backed by an instance of the routed event class and is processed by the WPF event system. So if you're going to create a custom routed event, you need to register a routed event using the register routed event method. And there's an example in the MSDN documentation. Just search for system.windows.routedEvent, the routed event class. And uh, it's a great little example. One thing that you might want to know is that the routed event class contains a name, routing strategy, handler type, and owner type properties, and none of those members can be a null reference or nothing. Check it out. WPF, routed events. Okay, now let's roll the recording of some interviews that we did at CodeMash, which I know you're going to love. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We are in a uh, podcast room here in uh, Sandusky, Ohio at CodeMash 2009. Yeah, it's a, an awesome little boardroom, actually. Not that it's all that little, but... Uh, oh, it's huge. In fact, in every every desk has every every place has a little microphone on it it's very cool but uh, and it's what a great conference totally sold out sold out like a month ago and uh, i just finished my session it was great so very not not a code camp this is a conference yeah it, i mean it's an inexpensive conference it's a non-profit but uh, it's uh, appealing to all different audiences some java folks some iphone folks uh, ruby folks it's amazing what is it, like 250 bucks? Yeah, I think that was about it, and, and the alumni get in for almost half price, something along those lines. That's pretty cool. Well, anyway, we're talking to a, a group of people here who are going to introduce themselves, and uh, very some very interesting Ruby development going on. Hi, how are you doing? Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, so my name is Joe Fiorini, and um, I was a member of a team, and the rest of the teams here will introduce themselves in just a second um we were involved in a competition called the rails rumble rails rumble took place over um october 18th and 19th um it's a it's a 48-hour competition to develop a web app in ruby on rails um the the rules are pretty basic you can develop anything you want um you're not allowed to have any code until the start of the competition um, they watch our repositories to see to make sure we're not committing too much. And you guys did a live porn site, right? Yeah, that. Is the, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get the rest of the introductions done before we go sure. tearing into the project. Sure, no problem. Uh, hi, I'm Jonathan Penn. I uh, was brought in at the last minute because another team member had to bow out. So I, they called me. Uh, after the competition started and said, would you mind driving out to Erie PA <laughs> to meet with us and, and code this thing? Uh, checked with my wife. She said, go for it. And it ended up being a great decision because it was a really neat time to do it. Wow. Yeah. I guess I can introduce myself a little more. I'm Joe Fiorini. I'm a Ruby on Rails developer in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm a .NET developer turned Ruby on Rails. And um, I work for a company called Within3, and we're developing a community platform for the healthcare industry. Okay. I'm Josh Walsh. I've never written a line of Ruby on Rails code in my life, which is ironic <laughs> since we won a Ruby on Rails competition. <laughs> um, I'm a JavaScript user experience, user interface guy, and I run a, uh, a small product development shop in Cleveland. Awesome. 
So I'm uh, Andrew Cavanaugh. Um, I run a small software company in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, I was the host of the event, uh, or, or not at the event, I should say our team. We started off at uh, <laughs> we started off at my house, which unfortunately Time Warner decided to disconnect the internet. So I provided a hotel nice. room, which unfortunately Marriott decided to have slow internet. So then we went to my father-in-law, who owns a law firm in town. Uh, he provided us office space at internet. So we were all around uh, all around the city of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, doing the Rails development. Now, have you paid your Time Warner bill yet? Well, I'm still arguing about that, you know. <laughs> when it's down, I shouldn't have to pay for it. And then when it comes back up, you know, well, I'm too busy to pay for it. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, this contest and how many people uh, were competing and uh, and what you guys did. Sure. So uh, I can start with the with the uh, size of the team. So it was 240 teams that actually entered. Teams can be from one to four people. Um, and obviously all around the world, so a lot of people developing within the United States, but we had teams in Australia. Did they have to be there in Erie to compete? No. Okay. <laughs> so it's it's remote, sorry. So our team was in Erie. Um, there's some teams in Cincinnati. They're all over the place. So there wasn't, re- yeah, there wasn't actually a site where this competition was taking place. It was working from your place and and everything was uh was all online but was there a time limit was there like a you go now and then you're done after a certain number of hours yeah so 48 hours so friday night at 8 p.m they opened the floodgates and friday night or sorry, sunday night at 8 p.m they closed everything so how could you tell though i mean what if somebody had been working for months on something and then just decided to throw it up online was there any checking that's a good question so github sponsored the event and all of the code had to be checked into GitHub as we went along. And then at 8 o'clock on Sunday, we tagged the finished product of the code, and they would just do a, you know, a hash against the finished code versus the code that's on your production server to make sure that the server code matches exactly with what's in the repository tag. Someone still put somebody, some thought into still it. Still, somebody could have been developing a, an application for a month and then just check that in at the that, lab. That's correct. They were they were watching, you know, what people were doing when they first initialized the repositories to see if they checked in ten thousand lines of code or something. Okay, so it was it was uh, there was a suspicious uh, there, suspicion meter police going off. There was definitely a uh, you know trust involved to make sure this was this was done right. But you guys won this thing, so you're saying you started from scratch. So how did the team form in the first place? I mean, it's Andrew, right? Yeah. And so, Andrew, you're the guy in Erie. You convinced, do you know these guys? You convinced them to come to your place? So I knew everybody but Jonathan, actually, um, and all through Twitter. And we kind of got together um, through Twitter. We formed the team. And we had a couple conference calls beforehand to kind of talk about what we'd like to do. Um, you're allowed to talk about what you want to do for the for the project, but you're not allowed to have any digital assets beforehand. Right. And... A couple hours before the event, we actually switched ideas completely. Um, we were going to do something that had to do with kind of relationship Somebody management. Somebody said, let's do a porn site. He said, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it started as relationship management, some sort of weird thing. And, you know, we then at the last minute said relationship, porn, you know, it all goes together. So, no. um, But we changed ideas at the last minute. Um, and then the guys drove to Erie. One of the guys couldn't make it. Last minute decision to bring on Jonathan. Um, and then, you know, we all just kind of work together. So, you know, Joe, uh, Joe's actually responsible for the idea, so I'll let him cover that in more detail. So we have, we've been talking about the um, contact management app idea for a little while, and I, I, it, wasn't, it, was, it was an idea, but I'm not sure it was the most, the most exciting thing that, that we could come up with. It wouldn't and, have been the first contact manager ever made, that's right, for sure. Right, exactly. Um, and I was, driving, I was uh, driving to work with a coworker, carpooling with a coworker one day, and she said, you know what I would love to have? 
I would love to have an, a an application, a website where I could go and put in my address and a friend's address, and it would suggest places for us to meet in the middle. And I That's looked at her idea. and I said, can we, can we have that? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I don't want to do it. I just want to use it. Right. So um, she was kind of our, our sponsor, I guess you could say, our, um, our user. Right. And um, this, was, this was the Thursday before the event. The event started on Friday. This was Thursday. And so I um, immediately, when I got to work, st um, started IMing with the team. It was like, hey, can we change ideas? <laughs> and what was your initial idea? Um, it was a... Yeah. It was Plaxo. Oh, okay, a contact manager. Yeah, yeah, it was a con a social contact manager. Yeah. Uh, couldn't come up with anything better. Okay. So anyway, we we had developed this idea of Plaxo. Basically, we were going to build a social graph contact manager, kind of the contact manager to end all contact managers. Mm -hmm. And then Kim gave us this idea and realized that we were just doing it all wrong. And um, so meet in between dot us was the result of that. Where you can go online. It's basically a big Google Maps mashup. Nice. So you can go on and you can enter as many addresses as you want to, your address, your friend's addresses, and it uh, uses some math to figure out where a good midpoint to meet in the middle would be. And you say like a coffee shop or a restaurant or a bar or wherever? Right. It calculates a midpoint for you, okay. and then you at that point can choose from a number of pre-selected categories or enter your own. So if you want to go find the nearest Apple store you know, between six of your friends to meet up and buy new Macs, you can do that. Ah, nice. Apple people do that a lot, actually. Hey, it's time to go get a new iPod. <laughs> or a new Everybody Mac. Come with <laughs> okay, so, uh, so how long did it take? How long did it take? Well, well yeah. It, 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 <laughs> so, you, so you took all 48 hours. We did, we did. But we, we slept a bit, and we traveled between different places looking for an internet connection. <laughs> yeah. and, and I wasn't there for the first you know, hour or two of the of the competition part. But yeah, it, it took 48 hours. And up to the very last moment, we ran into a bug in IE6 that we hadn't been testing it up to that point. <laughs> Stupid. We usually are really good about that in all of our respective fields. All four of us had Macs. So we oh. realized at the last minute, wait, who's been testing on IE? <laughs> so um, so we immediately started IMing with people we knew were, mm -hmm. you know, I know, I know having been a .NET developer, I know a lot of .NET people. So I um, immediately... Like started IMing them and asking, and of course IE six would have been the problem. It IE six is the browser problem child, yeah. and IE seven was fine. But I, I called my wife up too, and I'm like, "Can you hey, try this? Try that? What did it do? Oh, oh crap! So, <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy experience. Very, very fun though. So, what? Tell me about the technology that you use besides Ruby. Did you use a database? Um, you know what exactly? So, um, so obviously the the, um, well, I can't even say that the core code is in Rails. Um, for for Rails Rumble competition, we actually have a um, a lot of JavaScript. Okay, <laughs> but um, it's uh, Ruby on Rails with um, a lot of JavaScript and prototype with a uh, MySQL backend. Um, MySQL is just used to store points so that you can save them and send a link to your friends so they can see for later. So actually, all the source you've got geospatial data coming from. Google Maps? Right. Yeah, th this brings up an interesting point, is that the Google Maps API has a 1,000 request limit per day right. that you can use against their uh, thing per IP address. So our first problem was, will we ever hit the 1,000 a day during the competition judging period? How about this? 999 during, during the development, and then you go to launch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So it was an interesting problem. We were at first going to ignore it, but then decided maybe there's a better way to do it. So we decided, hey, if we write this using a JavaScript API instead of a server-side API, every IP address will be different, and there's no way one person is going to hit their... Well, uh, and if they hit, that's their problem, right? Exactly right. So I see you solved this problem by breaking Time Warner's internet connection and then moving to a a hotel. So that's how you got over the 1,000 limit (laughs) per IP. That's a good solution for 48 hours. So so building it in JavaScript was the right thing. And to give you an idea how much JavaScript is in it compared to Rails code, GitHub gives you this little graph at the end. It's a pie graph that shows how much of your code is in what different language. And ours were in two languages, Ruby on Rails and JavaScript. And at the end, 79% of the code was in Ruby on Rails. But that included all of Ruby on Rails in the repository itself. Right, the actual libraries themselves. Another reason to break it out and let the client do a lot of the heavy lifting was that it really helped our app survive the deluge of traffic sure. during the competition. Yeah. We, we lived really well. Talk about the server melting. <laughs> so Jonathan brings up a great point. Even Ruby, uh, Ruby on Rails uh, you know, survives well when scaling, but unfortunately with the event that we were given, we were given a free server to live on during the entire event and during the voting period. That server is not very powerful, so um, you know. And you, you have to lots share it. of yeah. Well, no, everybody's got their own private, so you know you can have your Rails can't scale jokes. But unfortunately, this was really our server problem. So uh, we got uh, we got life hackered. Is what actually ended up happening is you know we got a lot of press from unwillingly. <laughs> we weren't asking for it, um, but great either way. Um, so life hacker wrote an article about our site and our server melted. And uh, you got to give credit to the team at Linode. That's the hosting provider that provided all the free servers. They upgraded our equipment for free um, to a gig of RAM. Nice. And uh, that definitely allowed us to survive. Even though most of our code and all our heavy lifting was done in JavaScript, 256 megs of RAM just wasn't enough. Uh, MySQL was mel- kind of melting. Um, so we, we got upgraded to a gig. Site went on. Lifehacker brought us a lot of traffic. Site's still kind of bouncing around with lots of traffic. So we're you know thankful for Linode and thankful for the Ruby on Rails team and the uh the uh sorry rails rumble team for allowing us to do that so so what you're telling us is rails can scale yes. just wanted to make that very that clear yeah, yeah and it, it was my sequel that was melting not rails <laughs> that really literally that's what happened uh, what's your traffic like when you're talking about scaling well that, yeah, that that's like? interesting because when it first went up at the end of the 48 hours on the dot we're in this chat room on an IRC chat room, and everybody's saying, hey, here's what we submitted, here's what we submitted. And we were just getting requests, just people after people, after person, after person, telling us that, hey, that's the winner. You know, you guys have won it. And right up to the end, we were jotting between the first and second spot. So we people had known, even before the judging is over, that it was going to be one of these couple people in the top spots, and the blogs started picking it up. So Lifehacker picked it up, Mashable picked it up. Uh, who were some of the other ones? Do you remember? I don't remember offhand. A lot of a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of smaller blogs picked us up, and the traffic just spiked like crazy there. Lucky for us, most of our, our, our server did melt under the 256 uh, megabyte of RAM, but a lot of the heavy lifting was not done by us. Moving a lot of it to JavaScript, a lot of the load was on the client's machine and on Google's map server, which handled, which was a, you know, a little beefier than what we had. So. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question, um, as far as numbers, I think um, at, at the peak... Okay. <laughs> so for traffic, we uh, at peak we were doing um, about thirty thousand uniques um, for the month of November. Um, wasn't anything great. We have two competitors out there that we found after the fact, and actually now, if you look at our compete statistics, we're actually in the lead now. So you know, it's not the the 
largest amount of uh, visitor count, but we're in the lead in, in terms of our space. Um, and we're doing about 50,000, 60,000 hits per month. So how was the judging done? So um, it, was, it was interesting. Um, last, so this is the second year of the event. Um, last year, it was they changed the judging this year. Last year, it was um, it was just very standard. Um, anyone could come in and vote on any application. So people would put badges on their website saying "Vote for us on Rails Rumble." Right. And over a two week period, anyone could come in and vote. Um, one of the problems with that is there are some members of the community who have more notoriety than others, um, who are just well known. Sure. Um, one of the teams, one of the teams had a podcast, and to their credit, they did um, they did talk about other apps besides their own. But um, I think that this that still helped them bring some traffic to their site. Sure, yeah. And um, so they were the ones who ended up winning. And I don't want I'm not, I don't want to speculate that it was just because they had a, a podcast that was last was year's like, winner. That was last year's winner. Okay. So this year they decided to change the rules so that. Um, Instead of instead of um, anybody being anybody could still vote, but if you sign up to vote, you would get um, you would get twelve sites per day. So you kind of have a queue of twelve sites that you could vote on, and so they would send you a list of the twelve sites. You vote on if you vote on all twelve, then the next day you get a fresh list of twelve. If you vote on ten of the twelve, then the next day you get those two plus ten more. Okay. Um, and so that's how the voting was handled, and um, I think it had some interesting side effects. Um, it was pretty much the winners were determined very quickly. I mean, it was within the first because you were able to watch the voting um, the whole time. They had they had live stats, so um, within within the first few days, um, we were we were in first, and then for the for the rest of the competition, we were jumping between first and second. So what did you win? <laughs> um, there was a there was actually a, a big list of prizes. Access to a porn site. Nice. Anyone else want to explain this? So there was a large a large list of prizes. Yeah, we um, we won an iPod Touch and a Dell Mini each. No, unfortunately, we had to we had to cut the iPod Touch up into four pieces. Nice. Um, I got I, the part that works. So no, <laughs> no, no. We we kind of we kind of haggled. I got the about, on button. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we haggled about the prices. We got a, a Chuck Norris action figure in a complete in package. Sweet. We, yeah, yeah. We got, oh yeah. Got a uh, was it a twelve year old bottle of whiskey? Nice. Yeah. And what um, kind? What kind was it? Van, Van Winkle. Van Winkle or Van. No, not Riffin. No. Uh, yeah, I think it was Pappy Van Winkle. Is that Irish? Irish whiskey? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Never heard of it. But it was good. You heard of it? Nope. News to me. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Okay. Here's the list. Uh, yeah, it won a lot of uh, software service opportunities like um, Cashboard. Um, uh, what? Presently. Yeah, Presently. Um, got a chance to get a get access to Peep Code. Uh, they have a bunch of really great uh, um, screencasts for all kinds of stuff. Uh, okay, heavily in Ruby on Rails. And so who 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 put up who puts up this conference? I mean, I mean this contest. Like who who's providing the prizes? Is it just like a community thing that people it's, got together and did? Or it's very much a community thing. Um, one of the organizers is Nick Plant, who's a uh, who's a Ruby on Rails developer. He wrote um, he's written a couple of books and he's a speaker and. Um, and there were a number of other people who, uh, probably I think five or six other people who were pretty heavily involved. Um, and they're just all, they're all other developers who thought this would be a cool idea. And, um, they, 
and then the prizes were all donated by companies. So the whiskey was donated by GitHub. Um, oh, the grand prize uh, was the was the uh, Rails Rumble Championship belt, nice. which is an actual champ uh, title belt um, that's that has this the Rails Rumble logo on it. Wow, cool! Um, and that was donated by Thoughtbot, which is one of the um, premier consulting companies in the Rails space. Um, so just companies that have an interest in Rails were donate donated prizes. Yeah, we number we we won a number of other things as well, including some books and screencasts, um, a number a number of yeah, a very generous hosting from Engine Yard that's like an eight thousand wow. dollar value. Wow, nice. Um, and a Linode server, which is about another thousand dollar value. So did you move your app to all this to the new hosting and the yes, new server? Yes, we did. You did. Yeah. Uh, we moved it over to the line at hosting just because of how well they treated us when we got. Um, and what's hacked. the URL to the uh, meet in between meet in between dot us. us. Awesome. Richard's going there now on his laptop. There's a lot of, of new things that are coming up in the next. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm going to give it an ETA because uh, we don't live together. Longer than 48 hours. Longer than 48 <laughs> hours. Um, so an, an interesting problem we had that we couldn't fix after the 48 hours is over. We were limited to with what we could do. And the, the biggest problem we had was that the centralized point um, could be in the water. Interesting problem, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, if you put in Ashtabula, Ohio, and Toledo, Ohio, you would get in the middle of Lake Erie. Wow. So Ooh. it would suggest places for you to meet. It would use its radius search and would find places. Unfortunately, in that circumstance, you were in Canada and <laughs> didn't make yeah. a whole lot of sense. Uh, yeah, there are other borders that might be an issue there right. as well. We, we have fixed that problem in the next in the release. Straits of Hormuz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have fixed that problem in the next release. Um, I'm not going to say how because that's no, none of our other competitors have been able to do it yet. Um, so that that's coming next. And we also, it's important for us to note, we should mention this, because everybody gets it wrong, and rightfully so. This is a usability problem on my part. Most people think that you only enter two addresses, and it finds a spot in the middle, and that's not true. You can enter as many addresses as you want. And so what happens is you enter all these addresses, you hit find a place to meet, you choose your meeting location, and it gives you a permalink that you can share on Twitter or email or IM or whatever you want to do, send it out, and they all can come to that link, see all the locations, the center meeting place, and then get directions from their point to the meeting spot. That's excellent. You guys have any uh, last-minute things you want to say? I mean, I, 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 I'm really enjoying your T-shirts there. I mean, obviously, that was part of the prize. but uh, Or did everybody get a T-shirt who, no, who competed? No, just the winners. Just the winners. Those are Big pretty money. awesome. Rails Rumble. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, this that was. It sounds like a lot of fun. And any time that uh, a bunch of people can get together in forty-eight hours and do nothing but code and sleep, I, I think wanna... is a great thing for the for the future of humanity. Since we're at the <laughs> since we're at the Code Mash conference, I do want to take a minute and thank the Code Mash, uh, the sponsors and the organizers for putting yeah. the conference together. Um, this is they a did a conference. remarkable job, and I want to thank you guys for being out here. Our pleasure. Just, uh, just as a last second thing, I, I've. Talked a little bit to the guys that actually run the Rails Rumble competition. They're actually making it into a platform because, you know, we're being on a .NET uh, podcast and everything. They want to turn it into a platform that any language can compete, not just Ruby on Rails. So, you know, look for anybody that doesn't do Ruby on Rails. Look to the futures of these competitions may be coming to your programming language. This idea of we have 48-hour coding competitions to try and build something interesting. Do you think we can enter our same app into JavaScript Rumble 2009? <laughs> uh, JavaScript Rumble. Well, you've given us some ideas, too. I mean, this is something that we might be able to do as well. And uh, with um, and with Iron Ruby coming out, if any .NET developers are interested in Rails, now's the time to learn it. Sounds good. Thanks, guys.
Thank you. All right. We'll be right back with more of .NET Rocks from CodeMash. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the Internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place, you pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV video portal. Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own RAD controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM, making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote, and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. And we're back at CodeMash with uh, a couple of guys who wrote a very interesting program. So we're going to talk to them. Uh, Chris? Chris Marinos and... Uh, Mike Walmer. And Mike, how are you doing? So tell us a little bit about this application that you wrote. Well, the application was initially developed as my senior project when I was in undergrad at U of M. And we, um, we, we so developed So University it. of Michigan? Yeah, University of Michigan. Okay. Ann Arbor. Yes. Uh, I developed it along with two other group members, and it was originally written in C-sharp, built on the XNA platform, and it uses Wii remotes to control. Nice. Uh, yeah. And so at SRT Solutions, we have 10 hours of learning time each what week. What is the application, actually? It is a game where, loosely based off a of risk, uh, you control the world by moving things around with your Wii remote and you can move these little blobs we call them and you can move them and they'll attack each other and paint on the background hmm. the more paint you have on the background the more guys you get to attack uh. with and when you take over more of the space you can uh, eventually eliminate your opponents and uh, move on that way and you can also nuke them send little bombs and it explodes paint all over and kills all the guys so cool yeah, and so... And that's, this, that's this was game. aimed as a, as a kid's game? Uh, it was just aimed as a game, uh, something that would be fun to work on, and the class was in designing video games. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, it's a, it's a very original idea of a video game, because, I mean, you said Risk, but it's not a board game. Yeah, it's taking the some of the essence of Risk, along with some of the other things that make playing Wii games fun, and that's why the Wii has had such success, is because it's easy to pick up and kind of play around with, and fun, cute little graphics and stuff like that, and try to make something that would be fun and win our showcase at the end of the year to get us an A in the class. Nice, so. yeah. And, but you said XNA as well, so is this running on an Xbox? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a Wii remote interface. Wii remote with an Xbox, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I dig that. I was gonna, it, it, uh, tech, the game would technically run on an Xbox 360, but the problem is you can't control Wii remotes or plug them into the Xbox 360. Right. So uh, on XNA, you can run uh, Xbox 360 games on a PC. Okay. Which, well, on a PC, you can connect to the Wii remotes through Bluetooth. So um, the game currently is running on a PC, but that's the I limitation. See. So that's pretty cool, though, that you have... Now, what are you using for... Are you using the... Uh, the light bar of the Wii as well, or how do you? Yeah, there's a wireless sensor bar that some companies make, and people buy them for use on the Wii, and we just use that to. It's basically two points of light, and that's that's all it is. And it's and a USB. It's it's battery operated. Oh, 
How does it connect? Oh, it doesn't connect to the PC. No, the, the, it's just two points of light. So the Wii Remote actually looks at the two points as a reference. Um, but they're infrared or something, are they? Yeah, I think they're infrared. Yeah. So the Wii Remote has uh, gyroscopes in it that can, can that knows which direction and, and whatnot. But the one motion that you can't really detect really well is um, when you have no pitch and yaw. Yeah, it's a Z-axis rotation. Yeah. And that's where the the IR sensors come into play because there's a there's a there's a sensor on the front of the Wii remote that can detect where those two lights are. Right. And that's how you can get that motion in that direction. It's a, that actually is yaw. You can't detect pitch and roll. Right. Yeah. Pitch and roll is great on the gyroscope, but that right. yaw effect yeah, is, the, the yaw. is the tough one. So and and, the, and all the light bar is is lights. It's not yeah. transmitting. All the smarts is in the Wii remote. Can that's you correct. actually simulate that light bar on a PC? Or is it um, you can simulate it with um, any infrared light source. So, you know, if you get like okay. a little pen light or something like that, you get a couple of them. I and mean, there's some examples on the web where people were using different sources of light that can. Yes. So that's Paint Wars. Paint Wars. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was that's how we originally developed it as a C sharp application, the XNA platform with this Wii Remote interfacing library that we found online. It's an open source. So at. That's back in college. Graduate, go to off to work at SRT. At SRT, we get 10 hours of learning time each week to learn new things and technologies to pass on to our customers at some, some point, you know, get good at things. And um, so I thought it would be a cool idea to uh, ch- take the game that I'd written in C Sharp and make it into an F-sharp game. And not just an F-sharp game, but an F-sharp game written in a functional style. And so I asked Mike if he'd like to help out, and we converted the game uh, for... Initially, it was for display at the booth at CodeMash, but we ran into some performance problems that we didn't really feel comfortable using that version of the game for. So So. F-sharp with XNA? Yes. Yeah. Guys are crazy. (laughs) Well, F sharp is the .NET language, and so you can interoperate with any API, just just, you know, just like you would C sharp or VB. It's really simple. It was just uh, most of the conversations we've had around F sharp have been nowhere near the idea of writing a video game with F sharp, which is exactly the reason to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the reason that I was like, well, this is a problem domain that hasn't been really explored. It's not a trivial application. It's not some math application. What is it about F sharp that makes the game? easier to develop in a functional language. What, what is it about that game? Well, one of the things that we were exploring was asynchronous and trying to... The initial game had some stuff that we needed to do in, in a parallel fashion, uh, just for performance reasons for the initial one. And so I want to take that idea and blow it out as much as possible. And F-sharp and writing it functionally makes it easier to write those types of applications because of the shared state and all those other things that have been talked about. So did before. you actually end up with less code using writing in F-sharp? A lot less. Yeah, a lot less. And the F-sharp language is really concise and tight, and almost to the point where if you look at it initially, you may say, wow, it's not really readable. But after you get used to it after a while, it's like, wow, you can just do so much and so little code. So are we talking half? Uh, I'd have to look to make sure, but it, it was very terse and significantly less code for to get everything implemented. And, and the kind of code that you were writing tended to be the the calculating code. Is that is, do you, is there any C sharp left in it? There is some. So the 
the, the way the XNA framework works and it wants to work is with C sharp. So in order to get it to work with F sharp, I had to stub out some of the calls in the main update loop to F sharp portions of the code. Aside from that, uh, the, some of the graphics stuff is still based in the XNA framework and that stuff would not be written in F sharp. Okay. But the, the meat of the game is all F-sharp. So there's very little C-sharp code left in it unless you count the libraries that we're interoperating with. So, and what was the... Re I mean, now you've come up with less code, but you, you had performance problems? Uh, a little bit. And part of that's due to the time frame. We, we, we kind of hurried to get it ready for CodeMash sure. and wanted to learn as quickly as possible. And when you are learning a language, right? It, it's, yeah. It's like a rule. The first program you write in a new language is like the first clutch in your first car, right? Right. And the other thing, too, is um, with the performance problems is when you first write a language for the first time, you really don't know what is fast, what is slow. Right. right? So that was a great experiment. We, we took one direction with it. And now we can like fine tune it. And say, oh well, what's what's going on? Well, here? yeah, first time through, it's just about can I make this work? Right. Not right. so much can I make it work fast. Yeah. So it was an ambitious goal to get everything totally redone, and I got a lot farther. We got a lot farther than I expected initially. Really? Yeah. So and, yeah, and it actually worked, which was amazing. <laughs> it just didn't work with two hundred things on the screen at one time. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, a great exercise, interesting problem. The, uh, the challenge of writing code that way is just uh, a totally different way of thinking. i got to imagine right at the beginning you had this moment where it's like, what have I there done? There was probably a week that I spent not writing code thinking, how the heck am I going to be able to take this design, which was very object-oriented and had a large class hierarchy and all these things that you're used to in imperative object-oriented style programming and moving it into something totally different. Can, uh, did you publish the source code? Can we download it? Uh, not yet, but I will will be blogging about it and sharing snippets as it's developed. Honestly, right now, I don't want people to see that source right, code. Yeah, sure. It's pretty ugly. Understandable. So uh, it's the but over the next few weeks or months, I'll be blogging about it, um, and you can see that at srtsolutions.com/blogs. So I mean, we're talking this total paradigm shift from the very object-oriented app you built to this functional app. So what was the thinking like? Did you simply throw away the code, don't think about the existing code at all, and just rethink the application in a functional way? Right. It was a, it was a complete rewrite. And the, Chris probably had an easier time of it than I did since he's, you know, he, I have like over a decade of thinking in objects and object-oriented programming. Painful. And for, it was painful for me to say, how do I do this in a functional manner? I just want to think of objects, you know, because it, it's, it's modeled in the real world. It's so easy to think about a programming problem if you could say, oh, this object, and it knows how to update itself, and this and that. There, I mean, there are folks who argue that the way that objects is not the real world, but the reality is, I mean, like I said, you've had a decade of training your mind right. to solve problems in an object way. Right, and it's not an easy problem to solve, and thank goodness, you know, Chris found a way to, you know, to design the, the, the game so that, you know, we could do it in a pure, uh, somewhat pure functional manner. Um, Biggest challenge? The design. Really? No, no doubt about it. Trying, just like Mike was saying, I don't have that many years of experience thinking in object-oriented programming, but when, when you're taught you must use objects, you sure. must use yeah. objects as inheritances, you know, that's, this is the way to do it. You don't do anything different. You're mm -hmm. using state. Um, it's just the kind of thing with the problem domain that it's not really, the, it's not natural to, to do things that way. And I think the only other thing that I found that was close was somebody's, 
uh, thesis paper that was trying to do the same thing. And I was like, man, we're screwed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, I ha- I've seen the game. You, you have this background that has been painted on with all these the, the different colors of the competing blobs. Yeah. And then there's a few, the rings where the blobs spawn from. And then there's mm-hmm. the, the guys moving there. They, they use their Wiimotes to move a pointer around and drop bombs or move things around and so forth. So you've got this sort of machine running, this cycle running, where everything gets yes. a chance to get moved, you know, what gets moved when. Right, which doesn't sound very functional. No, it's the, completely the antithesis of functional. Like, yeah. What does the sort of core loop look like well, where you get way, all these things done? The way that I did the design, and I'm not sure if this is the, the right way or not, but basically what I came up with was it's the, the main update loop is composed of a series of updates. So you tell each object in the world, this is still thinking kind of object-oriented, but instead of having things be an object in the traditional sense, it's, it's a... It's more like a, structs as a data container. More they're more like structs, you said? Yeah, so I had a, a record which had a function on it that would produce a transform to the state of the world. And so you say... Each, based on the input state, I want you to produce a transform. And so it produces actually a list of transforms to the, to the game world. Then you apply those transforms in order to the state of the world. And you get a new state. And then you pass that back into the update functions. So it's functional in the sense that for each of those update functions, all that's required is the state of the game before the updates are applied, and then it produces a new transform. You apply those and repeat. So it is functional because there's no mutable state in there. Right. Um, Obviously, some of the other graphics stuff in the I.O. is naturally going to have side effects, and you can't write a game without that. But as far as the game logic, it's a lot more easy to reason about those kinds of things when you don't have shared or mutable state. Yeah, this is a yeah, fascinating problem to think through each of the items that are on the screen, which we don't want to call them objects because they're not objects anymore, but they're items that have some data, and each of them gets to call in, you, you, you call into a function of what to do next. Right. Yeah, so in F-sharp, it's, it's a, it was a record type. I used the record type to right. do it, it's called, and that record had a function on it, and you just pass it in, pass it on through. So... Yeah. Is it basically one function that's recursively called, or is it a series? Each So it's a set of different functions for each type of object. So, for example, there's little blobs that move and uh, move around the screen, and so they have their own AI and their own decision-making that needs to happen. And so their update loop looks a lot different than the update loop for... Uh, say the cursor or the spawn point. Right. Um, and that, and so those functions are separate, but the way you interact with those objects, those records is still the same. So the, yeah, the sort of core loop is the same, but you're calling different functions yeah, for different so items. If, if you want to think of the analog in the object oriented design, it would be a base class. I had an abstract base class with a function update, which actually updated the state of the object instead of updating the state of the world. So the world was then just a list of objects, and you told them all to to update themselves. And then you have a class hierarchy where you override things, 
and say, okay, well, I'm not a cursor, I'm a blob, and I know how to update myself differently, and you handle things through inheritance. So there's some interesting problems there. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's a great description of the object-oriented approach, but the functional approach is you know, completely the other way around. Very different. Very different. So uh, what's happening next? I mean, you've still obviously got some work to do on the F-sharp side of things. Yeah, perfor- increasing the performance is actually finishing the game is a good thing and then refactoring mm-hmm. it and talking with other people that have experience with f sharp and trying mm-hmm. to learn from this develop best practices develop idioms do things to really advance the language and advance our under our understanding and everybody's understanding of the language because it's it's early on when you uh when you finally get this done contact us and we'll do a dnr tv episode on this okay sounds good uh the uh and of course, part of this has got to be that F Sharp is not finished inside of uh, of the studio yeah, world. There are some things like, yeah, and they're, they're going to make performance improvements in the framework and stuff like that. So, you know, it's too early to tell. I think uh, you know how everything will end up in, in the end. Sure. Yeah, I think Microsoft's very interested because you've actually got some proof here of here's an app that runs perfectly well in C Sharp. And here we're trying to do the same thing in F-sharp. And, and uh, are we coding it wrong? Or is the language not performing well? Is the IL that's coming out not that good? Yeah, we're actually in contact with the F-sharp team as far as uh, having them put that in their source archive to use for performance testing sure. and to see you know, the, the same things you just mentioned. Yeah, how are we going to resolve those sorts of problems? But the argument of the design has got to be the big challenge here. It's just, is this the right way to do this? And you've said it, when you hit 200 items on the screen, now you're you're struggling. So the size of the data set seems to matter a lot to this. Yeah, it hasn't scaled well, but... That's also that was also true of the C sharp version when I first wrote it. Right. It's I mean anytime you're trying to scale when you're doing collision detection and these other complicated things, it's going to be a performance problem. It was just harder to lear- do that in F sharp without that wherewithal that you know oh I know I can probably do this faster by doing spatial partitioning and this you know you know things when you're you're at home in a, yeah, a little more experience with the language. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm thinking again, so I had a chance to look at the game, the way that blobs fight each other, where they seem to gang up on an, on an, an enemy blob. Like that's a very good dynamic. It's, it's sensible to a human, but I think about the code that's involved in doing that. That's not a trivial piece of thinking either. That yeah. And, that fight and resolves it properly. Yeah. And our, our group, my group member is back at, University of Michigan did a, a great job with both some of the, the AI initially and the graphics on the game, too. So there's a lot of work that went. Well, guys, we can't it. wait to see the final product. And please let us know so we can uh, add a link to the show and, and get people uh, interested in it. All right. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Chris and Mike. And uh, we'll be back with more from CodeMash 2009 just after this. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. 
And Richard and I are back at uh, Code Match 2009. We're sitting with Corey Haynes. Hi, Corey. Hello. And uh, we were talking at the bo- at the bar. Oddly enough, oddly enough, at the bar last night, drinking uh, Maker's Mark again. Yeah, and and some crazy appetizers that this with flaming volcanoes and stuff. Yeah, those guys were. They, the funny thing was the the food came out faster than the drinks. Yeah, I don't know how they did that, and and all of it not for our table. Maybe that was why, because they were bringing it for someone else. Yeah, that's right. We ended up eating somebody else's food, but that's not the yeah. story. That's you, not why we're here. You have Corey. a bunch of geeks at the bar, though, and the, the yeah. drinks are what's going to take a long time. That's true. <laughs> so, Corey, you were telling us about this pair programming tour that you organized, and it mm-hmm. was just fascinating to me. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, um, last year, I... Uh, lost my job in September and I sat around on my couch for about a month and a half uh watching Babylon 5 and <laughs> which is a great show and Michael Zizinski only five yes. there's only five seasons of it though yeah we will run out of episodes eventually eventually but it's amazing that when you are just sitting on your couch all day watching Babylon 5 you can make it through a lot of uh. episodes um <laughs> but I got the idea I mean I've been uh sort of in the agile community for coming on about five years now and um, I've always thought it would be a great, fun thing to do to just kind of travel around and be hosted by people and program with them. I mean, it, it seems like a fun thing to do, and, and I, it was a perfect situation. And I've got, you know, a fairly wide-ranging network through sort of Michigan and then in the Chicago area with sort of the object mentor line of um, extreme programming companies sure. and stuff like that, and then through Ohio. And I thought, you know, what the heck? So I put out on Twitter that I'm going to take three weeks and go out on the road, and I will pair program with you for a few days in exchange for room and board. Nice. And I had saved up a couple – I had saved up probably a, a few months' worth of money right? Um, as I was working. So you are able to survive. I was able to survive, and, you know, it cuts the cost down. All I have is a mortgage when I'm driving around pairing with people. And then I met um, – when I was down at RubyConf – David Chalimsky, um, who I've known for a few years, he, uh, he actually is the one who got me into Ruby. He was like, oh, come on out. Come on out. I'm come in Chicago. Come program with me. Come program with me. So he was kind of one of the anchors. Um, so December 1st, I got in my car. I went out and uh, drove to David's house and stayed at his place, programmed with him all day and chatted with him all night. And uh, um, Uncle Bob or Bob Martin, mm-hmm. had contacted me, and he said, you know, come in for a day, let's program. I'm working on this Ruby Slim project. And then I got contacted by Dave Hoover from Obtivo, which is a agile consulting uh, shop in Chicago. And then it just kind of, I when I left, I only had a week's worth of actual people. We'll pair and, program for room and board. I love yes, that. Yes, yeah. But you, <laughs> so you actually, where, where's your home? Cleveland. So you Cleveland, started in Ohio. Cleveland, yeah. drove to Chicago. You mm-hmm. had one week of these three weeks booked at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of it was that it's, a, it's, kind of, it's one of those ideas that people think, oh, that would be really cool. But nobody's ever, nobody actually does it. Right. And what was the experience like? I mean. Um, it was just amazing because the... What I got was like two or three days of pairing with somebody new. I got to see their techniques. I mean, I have a, I have pretty much established techniques. You know, I do TDD. I do pairing. Right. I do these sorts of things. Well, I go in and I pair with, say, David Chalimsky, and he does it differently than I do. Sure. Even though he kind of showed me a lot of the BDD stuff we do, um, we do it differently. And then I had a period of time 
you know, a couple hours to sort of digest it. And then I got to the next person. Yeah, I mean, I'm then, almost wondering, do you have time to be productive? You're only spending two or three days per person. You've got to learn their technique and learn their project and then make a contribution to it. Mm-hmm. And what, it, what turns out is one of the beauties of pair programming is that the ramp-up time is so fast. Now, I've been programming for a long time. Right. Um, I've been programming professionally for about 10 years. I've been doing pair programming for about you know four to five years. Right. So... It doesn't take me that long to ramp up to where I can contribute to a pairing session. If you asked me to go off and add some functionality to their system by myself, it would take a long time. Right, right. But so they the already know their system. The pair. Absolutely. The pairing, um, I mean, I'm a, I've always believed that pairing was good, yeah. and I've always seen that it was good, but I've... I used to be one of those people who said, well, you know, but there's, there's sometimes when you just can go off and do it by yourself and it's more productive... I am now absolutely convinced pairing, there is no better way to, to was, write your code. What was the most interesting project, to, one of the more interesting mm-hmm. projects that you worked on and, and things that you learned about by doing this? Um, one of the, I'd have to say that the most interesting was with Jonathan Branham. He uh, is writing a Ruby interpreter in Flash. Yikes. So he <laughs> lives in Muncie, Indiana. Wow. For people who want to go and... See him. I mean, this kid, he's awesome. Action script. Action script. So basically what he did was he said, he does flash development, and he said, I want to kind of do it in Ruby. So he has a little service that you send Ruby source code to, and it returns you bytecode, the bytecode that the the standard interpreter, the MRI, uh, C-based interpreter, reads. Wow. He takes that, and basically he opened up the source for the interpreter, and he said, well, I know C. And so he's just porting it, straight porting the C source into ActionScript. And I got in and... Funny, C is still a portable language. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you can port it. You can. Uh, but Good it was, luck with that, but you can do it. It was really cool because he, uh, I was there for a day, and the one thing um, that he was... Well, the, one more, the most fundamental thing he was missing was exception raising and handling. Right, And so we got up in the morning, and I know the basics of VMs and interpreters and all that, but I am not a language writer or designer. Sure. Um, by the end of the day, we had exceptions being raised and rescue clauses being called and everything. And it was just, I asked him at the end, you know, what is, you know, was it worth it and everything? And he said, yeah, I, I, even though I didn't contribute a lot of the code, I was a sounding board. Right. He said it was nice because I caught typos he made. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, always the role of the pair is to sit there and be what the other person needs. Yeah. Um, and that was fantastic because, wow, what a... What a, what a well, and, and in a day, I mean, it's just staggering to me that it's... And it's not like he prepped to have you come in for days in advance. So in a day, this was the thing you guys grabbed onto, talked, to the night, talked about the night before, mm-hmm. and then went to work. And it, it doesn't sound like you finished it. But you got it working. We got the exceptions raising. He's now continuing to, to fill in the little gaps and stuff. So, and it, it's important that it, it's not that I, Corey Haynes, was there and that made us productive. It was having somebody. He works not by himself most of the time. Mm. It was having that other person the there. set of eyes. That we got into the flow and we, I think we started at like nine and ended at three. Wow. And just coded. And we skipped lunch. Because we just on. we got some granola bars because he was like, "Are you hungry?" And I said, "I want to get this working." 
Yeah. You got some momentum going. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's an amazing experience. And the nice thing is, is that it's kind of, um, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a while and I have these set of techniques. The best way to improve your own skill set and to, to really make that next leap in your abilities is to go work with other people. Right. Work with people who are better than you, like Uncle Bob. <laughs> work with people who are new. I worked with a guy who had been coding for about a year. And I was in more of the mentor role, but I had to show him and explain to him what I was doing. And That always helps yes. you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like I said, I will pair with anybody. Um, I don't care what you're working on. Most languages, I've been doing it long enough, so if it's not some esoteric language, I can pretty much pick up and how can and do uh, it. how can somebody get a hold of you if they want you to come pair with them um well my my standard blog is coreyhaines.com there's Spell it. A, a c-o-r-e-y h-a-i-n-e-s okay and pretty much everywhere on the web i'm that Corey haynes so okay. twitter is Corey haynes facebook's Corey haynes well there's a couple Corey haynes on facebook but uh coreyhaines.com coreyhaines at gmail.com Corey Haynes on IM. I have a problem everything. because there's a uh, there's a uh, film director named Carl Franklin who uh, oh. he directed Out of Time with Denzel Washington. Oh, and, nice! Uh, <laughs> and uh, one false, one true thing, or one false thing? I can't remember one true thing. Anyway, yeah, so he's got some film credits too, and you know he's got more Google love than I do. Yeah, <laughs> it's a I, complicating factor. They, there's another Corey Haynes outside of Detroit who is a policeman. And so, you know, of course you have a Google alert on your name. Sure. And every, so periodically Google sends me all of the just awesome stuff he does. Oh, he captured drug dealers. Or, oh, there was a rape attempt and he he fixed it. And I've, I'm going to be doing a tour through Michigan and I'm dead set on stopping and just do it going, dude, awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I think this, the other Carl Franklin and I are destined to meet someday. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to imagine in most of those scenarios, was it the other guy with the hands on the keyboard and you're watching and, and, and contributing? Um, for the most part, only with Jonathan, where it was, it was really out of my realm. But um, most of it was done in Ruby. Right. And um, I, worked in, um, I worked at 8th Light with some people. They have a, a UI framework called Limelight, which is really cool. I didn't know the framework, but a UI framework is a UI framework. I mean, yeah. once you understand the metaphor that they're going to use... You can come in and program and be productive. I do TDD. Um, Did you set up two keyboards? Yes. That's, I, that's cool. My pairing, my preferred way of pairing is face-to-face across the table. And I have a monitor, a laptop, and a keyboard attached to your machine. And you have a laptop or you have a monitor and keyboard and mouse attached to the same machine. So we are constant eye contact. Um, the the shift is when you're sitting next to the person right. pairing, you are writing code together and you're having a conversation about the code. When you are face-to-face, you're having a conversation and you're writing some code to support the conversation. And that's really what problem-solving is and creation and, and, and the, the building this uh, thing. So you be. each have your own screen then? or you... We each have our own screen. Okay, but you're looking um, at the same things. Yes, looking at the same thing, preferably the same monitor. Um, if you um, can do screen sharing, right. that works really well. Brian Merrick and I did screen sharing. He wrote a blog entry about it on his blog. Um, 
and it was it was nice. The important thing is that you have eye contact. If I start to code something, I'll be able to tell by your body language whether or not I'm going somewhere that you think I shouldn't go. Interesting, and because he because I, you're sitting in front of me with the monitor sort of between us, but I mm-hmm. can still see you. I get that my subconscious references to your body language. Then, yeah. so like you said, you're now you know looking at the screen and typing, but your brain input still sees the motion of the other person. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's the way we live. I mean, we are yeah. social creatures who pick up so much on subconscious cues from other people. Well, it's almost like you force your subconscious into play there. Yeah, because you've taken your conscious eyes off the person. Yes. but still left them in your view. Yeah, and you. That's powerful you, stuff, man. Very you clever. Really do pick it. I actually picked this technique up from. From a guy named Jonathan Cogley. He's a uh, uh, agile guy in Washington D.C. area, and um, I used to do the side by side. And then he was like, "No, no, no, man, try this. Try this." And yeah. I've never gone back. It's the best way. Yeah, have some of this. <laughs> so, uh, are you going to continue to do this? Yeah, I'm actually working on uh, setting up an organization to support other people doing similar style uh, journeyman tours. Um, a f- not most people can't go traveling and staying on people's True. couches and guest beds and eat, we're living with them. But I think most everybody could take a day off a month and go find an independent consultant and pair with them. And from what I'm hearing about your technique, it doesn't sound like remote works well. Um, I don't think f- remote pairing works. It, uh, I, wait, I put two bad thoughts together. Remote pairing works. It does. It's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't come close to the effect of pairing with somebody of, um, right. in person. And what my goal is to get people to use, the, um, to use these tours and the pairing to build their technique, build their skill level, um, and really push their abilities farther. Um, and so I'm setting up an organization. I'm working with some companies to formalize developer exchange programs. Um, and then I'm basically dedicating 2009 to this idea that pairing with as many people as you can is a fantastic way to develop your skills past kind of post-apprenticeship activities. Well, you, and you said this journeyman. Yeah. And I know we talk about this a bit in the bar, this idea of we have we have folks coming out of college having studied development and they are apprentices and we plug them into their first project where they're pretty heavily shepherded maybe they're paired maybe they're not you know whatever the system is that they get plugged into and there's a certain amount of time that passes and what where do you feel we come out of the apprenticeship phase is it one project two projects three projects kind of thing i don't really know yet i have a i have a gut feeling that tells me it's several years i I Um, buy that for no other reason it just it's certainly not at the end of the first project. No, and, no. And in, and in minimum, that project is you know between six months and a year and a half. Yeah, I really think that that it's more of a case of the apprenticeship phase, and this is definitely my opinion. And, and in the software craftsmanship uh, community, we're kind of discussing this right now. Sure. Um, but in my opinion, the apprenticeship phase is where you learn from a small set of people, a core set of techniques and practices and principles that you apply rigorously to software development. So, for example, I do TDD. Right. I always do TDD. Um, If I write code in a spike or something that isn't TDD'd, once I figure out how to do it, I delete it, and then I rewrite it with TDD. Right. Um, 
I aggressively apply some principles like single responsibility, um, inversion of control, things like that. Once you've established that core set, now's the time where you can actually go out and be both, you can both add value to other people because right. you can bring your experience and you can, you can pick up their experiences, find sure. the things that are good, bring those into yours. And if you meet somebody who has their set of practices, you have your set of practices, but they're different, but they both work, there must be some core, slightly lower level abstraction of what is it that, what is it about software development that makes both of these different practices work? Um, and that brings it into, you know, when I was pairing with Uncle Bob, the code just flows from his fingertips. Yeah. He knows how to do, we, we had a task where we had to do token replacement in a string. Yeah. Well, he knows how to do token replacement. It's pretty much one way now to do right. token replacement. We don't have to go experimenting with things. It's, this is the way you do token replacement. And then it's a question of, how do you do it in Ruby? Mm. Right, because that's the language you're using. How much time do you find devoted to... Um, you know, refactoring somebody. Let's say somebody's working on something and they're stuck, and you say to yourself, ah, an inversion of control container right here would be mm -hmm. the solution to this problem, and they don't know anything about IOC. And now you're, you know, you take an hour or two hours to sort of figure that out or, sh or talk while you're, re you know, recoding it for them, or do you... Do you I would find talk. that you do a lot of that? Um, not really. There was, one, there was one person who, when I came in, um, they were like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to refactor this one method, and I've been working on it for a day. And I looked at it, and we tried. And no matter what we did, it got worse. Okay. And I've never seen that happen before. And I told them, I was like, could we take a second and, you know, let's, let's do a branch, yeah. and let's just delete it. And let's start Try over. Starting, starting start over. over. And we started over, and I showed him the way I um, develop my software, which I used to call Turtles All the Way Down, but I've been watching... That is an amazing reference, um, Turtles All the Way yes. Down. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's a Native American myth. Actually, it's been around a long time. And, and well, don't, don't leave us hanging here. All right, well, well it's the world. The, the, the world is essentially on the back of tortoises. And uh, and they're stacked, and so the question is, well, how far, how many turtles is the world stand sitting on? And the answer is, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> and it it turns out, I was watching the uh, the structure and interpretation of computer programming uh, video lectures with uh, Abelman and or Abelson and Sussman from the mid '80s, right? Um, and it, you know, it's a Lisp series. They're teaching some guys at HP, and he goes, oh, well, we have a, uh, in Lisp, we do this thing called wishful thinking, programming by wishful thinking, which is where you just write, well, this is what I wish there was. I wish I had functions that did this. <laughs> and then you go and you get it working, and then you take one of the functions that you wish existed, and you implement that. And you implement that by going, well, I wish I had a function that did this and this and this and this and this. And you just list out the functions that you'd like it to do, and then you take one of those, and you implement it, and you just keep implementing down, and eventually something does something, and the system just works. Um, so I introduced this guy to it. We, um, you know, stubbed out the the lower layers, and in the end, it was much simpler. Um, it was much more readable. I felt um, he did too, because I asked him afterwards. I was like, okay, well, let's let's 
you know, I want to make sure. That's cool. Um, there's there's such a strong social component in the way you're communicating, even with us right here, where you're very sensitive to what do you think, how do you, how do you see this. It's it's so much gentler than I think we look at most programmers. You know, the they, the smartest guy in the room syndrome that we normally deal with. Does does are has Corey always been like that, or is do you think that what you've been doing lately has affected the way you communicate? Um, I think agile changed me. Really. Um. I've been, you know, kind of learning more and more and more for the last almost five years. Um, the people I meet, the the principles of honesty and courage and all of that stuff, um, it, that really changes me. Now, if you ask some of the people who know me here at Code Mash and know me in the community, I am very loud You're and outspoken. I'm very outspoken, and I have some I have some thoughts. And I am very adamant about those thoughts, sure. and I will speak them up, and I will be. I take pride in the fact that I'm, I, I'm willing to be dissuaded and have my mind changed. Yeah, change my mind, but you have to change it. Yeah. And I will fight until you change it. But there's a time when, perhaps, I go, "Oh, you're right." Well, and, and we, getting back to this conversation around when is an apprentice ready to be a journeyman is really this is there there's a point of maturity where I have a set of ideals that I believe and that have been successful for me but I'm and I'm confident enough in them now that I'm willing to have them challenged and be persuaded. Yes. Yeah, and that's an important thing because you you do have to go back into that beginner's mind of okay, I've it seems to work, and I think that I'm really smart because I know how to do TDD, and right. I can write all of these fancy frameworks and all of that. Well, you know what? There's a guy out there who's been doing this longer than I've been alive. And, and he's doing it a different way. Yeah. And, and he's been successful, too. And it's probably something to learn. It's an old saw here at .NET Rocks that in order to be a really good developer, you have to kill your ego. Yes. You have yeah. to be totally willing to be and humbled. One thing I would say is absolutely – but you've got to have that ego because you have to have an ego that says, you know what? I can go out and I can spend a day with somebody and I'm good enough and I'm experienced enough to make it worth their while because they're, you know, for my case, they're hosting me. Sure. But I have to be contributing something to them. Right. But I have the experience in that I can contribute at some level. So I do, I mean... Like I said, you ask anybody, I have a huge ego. Yeah. Um, but but it's, it's an appropriately huge ego. Well, it's, a, it's an ego based on things that I think ego should be based on, which is I've got experience as well as the fact that um, I'm willing to be proven wrong. And sure. I like when people prove me wrong. And, and that's what I feel a lot of my ego is based on is saying I'm willing to be proven wrong. But you know what? You got to prove me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Corey, thanks very much. And uh, CoreyHaines.com, your blog. We're we're looking forward to that. And if anybody wants to get uh, in touch with Corey to do some pair programming, uh, by all means, do that. Thanks a lot, Corey. Ah, thanks a lot, you guys. All right, and that's it for us from Code Match 2009. We'll see you next time. Dotnet rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got